what we are hardwired to do doesn't belong and doesn't fit and is bad. That just wraps it in more shame. And it stops us from understanding that jealousy is a complex emotion. It's not a simple emotion. Simple emotions, anger, fear, happiness. So these are, um, they're like molecular level emotions. You don't need to break them down further. Mm -hmm. But jealousy is made of a whole bunch of other things. Anger, rage, depression, sadness, grief, and fear. You mm -hmm. cannot separate jealousy from fear because you're fearing whether it's real interruption or imagined interruption. Does not matter. The imagination is very real. You're fearing this interruption of your love bond. And when you fear it, the jealousy comes out and it, it, it brings up all these other emotions. It's mm. a protective move. Mm. And yet it brings up things like sadness, grief, fear. These, this is a whole host of emotions that we don't tend to deal with really well. And then we repress it all by saying it's just jealousy. You're listening to the Wise Women Podcast, Season 4, Episode 131. I'm your host, Alicia Wilfert, founder of Yoke and Abundance, leadership coaching for entrepreneurs, creatives, and seekers. This podcast is designed to inspire by introducing you to creatives living abundantly. In today's episode, I'm sharing my conversation with research psychologist and certified sex educator, Jolie Hamilton. Welcome back, everyone. I am delighted to share today's interview with Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, and AASECT certified sex educator, TEDx speaker, and sex and relationship coach. She holds a doctorate in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She has spent many years working directly with clients, helping them improve their relationship skills, and is also a professor of human sexuality. Over the past two decades, she has started a dozen business ventures ranging from clothing design to personal training to providing birth and lactation doula services, all while managing her own relationships, pursuing her graduate degrees, and raising and homeschooling seven kids. Jolie has felt those wild highs and terrible lows that come with business ownership, marriage, divorce, and reinventing love from the bottom up. She is committed to helping women create sustainable, soul-nourishing relationships without sacrificing their career dreams. I can't wait to share this interview with all of you. Now, calling all purpose-driven female entrepreneurs with stories to share with this world, I want you to meet my friend Abby Gibb, who also happens to be an Emmy award-winning journalist turned business and media mentor. She's helped women like you build million-dollar businesses around your personal story, become best-selling authors, and land TED Talks in months. She's currently offering a special for my Yoke and Abundance community on her number one media marketing course, the Media Visibility Accelerator a six-module course for purpose-driven entrepreneurs who want to scale their business to 25K plus per month and scale their message into a global movement. This is the program your soul craves and your bank account deserves. Check out the link in today's show notes. 
Now on to today's show. Jolie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Likewise. Can you tell folks what keeps you busy in this big, beautiful world? Uh, That's a great question. So much bigger than what do you do? What keeps you busy? One of the things that keeps me busy is I have a whole bunch of children. They're ages 13 to 21, and they certainly keep me busy because nobody told me the teen years would be the time when I was running around, even in a pandemic. And you're a homeschooler, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I homeschooled before it was the thing everybody had to do. Um, So I've been homeschooling for 20 years now, and I love it. It's sort of built into how we live our lives, so it works really well. And I'm really lucky to have a co-parent who is skilled in areas that I'm not. So that helps fill the gaps in around there. So that's one of the things that keeps me super busy. And, you know, the rest of my life is filled with the pleasures of being an entrepreneur which means I do a little bit of everything. And that ranges from writing to doing coaching and into my academic work where I professionally research jealousy and non-monogamous relationships and monogamous relationships. Tell us about your book, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So my book is called Project Relationship, The Entrepreneur's Action Plan for Passionate, Sustainable Love. I wrote it because I wanted to get my words, my take on what it is that we can do to actively create the love relationships that we want, rather than just play out what we learned when we were kids. I know my parents tried to do a good job with me. Um, My partner's parents did, but they're only doing what they could. And most people didn't grow up in really conscious households. And even if we did, it is really common for us to see that early model of love and then just play it out. And even if it worked for our parents, that doesn't mean it'll work for us. So I wanted to write down my process that was very hard won (laughs) after leaving a very challenging first marriage and then deciding I needed to learn how to love from the ground up. I studied my way out of it. Um, So 12 years later, I, I wanted to write down what the process was. It was steps. It was actions. It wasn't just waking up one day and magically knowing how to do love better. Mm. And it didn't happen because I just wished for it. And it didn't happen because I married the perfect person. He's great, but he's not perfect. He'd be the first one to say so. So I broke it down and I wrote it as if I was writing to my best friend or my daughters in particular, because I was writing for that, that feminine angle. I wanted them to have this outline of like, what can you do when you feel like you're boxed into a corner and the relationship you're in is like good enough, (laughs) good enough, but not, so it's not abusive but you just feel like there's something on the table that's not being used. There's just more to it. And so I, over the course of about a month, I just like wrote it all down (laughs) and got it all out. And what I wound up with was something I didn't expect, which was an action plan, a way people could work through their own relationship histories in very short, manageable bites and say, let me have these uncomfortable conversations that I've never had before. Let me talk about what boundaries actually mean. Let me talk about what sex means. What is sex for me? What words do I want to use in the bedroom? What are my ideas of what an argument is? And how do I talk about money? So uncomfortable stuff. So many of us don't system systematically talk about when we're setting up our relationships. I wanted to like lay it out just in case I wasn't here and somebody needed that information. 
And then I thought, what the heck? Put it in a book. That sounds like a great idea. And why did you decide to put the slant around entrepreneurs? That's so fascinating to me. Yeah. So it was, I was, um, I had rejected the label of entrepreneur for quite a while, which is really funny because I, I've been running businesses since I was a kid, but I rejected the word until I learned what its roots were. Um, the word entrepreneur means to manage. I don't know a woman out there who isn't managing a whole big, complicated life. And usually in that life are at least a few projects that she's completely responsible for. She's the driving force. And so what I noticed is that when I showed up with my full set of strengths that I used to run while well, I ran a CrossFit gym and I, I designed wedding gowns and I, I was a birth and lactation doula, when I showed up with all the skills I used there to run those businesses, when I brought them home and I actually applied them to my relationship, things went really well. Mm. Things went less well when I imagined that my relationship should just work because it should work. Like that love should just be straightforward. I think that loving is straightforward, but love is not. And it takes some effort. And like, I found that I could use this, the entrepreneurial skills of, you know, being willing to take risks, being willing to make connections between people, um, having an innovative mind, a mind that could go to places and, and invent out of nothing, like something that hasn't been done before. Those same skills that had served me so well in creating businesses, they really, they were exactly what I needed at home. So I needed to stop taking that, that hat off when I got home and, and actually use them. Okay. So it sounds like in relationships, loving long-term committed relationships, one of the things that helps us have success in those is being willing to have difficult conversations. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, how how do you propose we do that? I'm sh I know you have a strategy for it. I do. I do. I actually lay out a, a method because some of us are we come easily to difficult conversations. And I think that's actually one of my one of the talents that I bring to this particular realm is that difficult conversations have always been something that I enjoyed, even when I wasn't skilled at them. Mm. There's something about a challenging conversation that made me like leap into my curious zone, but not everybody comes to them like that. And what I noticed is that my children didn't come to that naturally. And so I needed to be able to teach them the skills of, okay, there's a difficult conversation that needs to be had. Why? Because either you don't feel good you feel like you can't express yourself or something's not working for you. And most of the solutions to most of our problems lie in the communication between me and the people around me. And some of my kids were really, really struggling. So I started naming, how were they struggling? What was going on? When were difficult conversations becoming impossible conversations? And those that led us right into the stuff that bothers everybody. We either start fighting, we freeze, we go into um, a total fawning response. And now we're just trying to make other people happy. One of the four Fs comes up and now we're not really having a conversation. We're coping. Mm. And so I noticed it first with my kids, but then I realized that that was showing up in all of the relationship conversations I was having everywhere, whether I was, you know, coaching somebody on the floor of a gym, or I was working with my husband 
no matter where I was, if somebody had gone into their coping mechanism, they weren't able to have the difficult conversation. So I structured this. I started making some templates. How do you have a, a difficult conversation? And one of my secrets is that I ask people to get clear. There's a whole process. Get clear on what you actually want. And then craft the first two sentences of the conversation. Actually, like write it down. What do I need to say? What are the first two sentences that will set me up to actually be having the conversation I mean to be having? And then practice them. Say them out loud several times. Then set up a time to have the conversation when you won't be interrupted, when you can attend to the needs of the situation. That means 30 to 90 minutes you want to have clear. And from there, you start with those first two sentences. You go ahead and you bridge the divide by bringing a well thought out, here's what I need to bring to this conversation. Here's what I'm hoping we can talk about. And just teaching my kids, my clients, um, my husband to approach me with that those first couple sentences laid out, it helped them bring these challenging topics out in a way that felt a little bit safer. A little bit like, you know, when you feel panicked about public speaking, like most people feel a little panicked about it, you practice. Mm. This is a version of public speaking. Asking for what you want is public. (laughs) You're making your wants public. So we have to face it in those same ways. And so many people have such a difficult time even being able to verbalize to themselves what their wants and desires are. Yeah. So when you first spend that time really writing out what it is that you want to get out of that conversation, you're able to at least first shed some light on what it is that you really want and desire. Right. And usually there's a moment when people have to have a real reckoning with themselves because often we are trying to have um, a relationship where we're hoping so frequently, this happens for so many of us, it still happens to me, where I think that somebody else needs to change something they're doing for me to stop feeling a particular way. Mm. So I want I want to relieve some pain or discomfort, or I want to feel more of something, whatever it is. And in that time when I'm contemplating what it is I actually want, if I find myself noticing, I want them to change, I want them to do this, I want, and I'm pointing all of my energy outward, That's a note for myself that actually there's something I can do first. What is it I want for me? Where is this boundary? Sometimes we really do want a change from our partner. Um, For instance, I have had a partner before who had a snoring problem and I needed to ask him to change his sleep patterns because it wasn't working. We we weren't getting enough sleep. That was a hard conversation because it, it literally involved him taking an action that needed to be taken. And so that wasn't just about me. I couldn't just change it on my side of the street. I needed to ask him. So I wanted to approach it from a, this is how I'm being impacted. And I would like for us to negotiate and come to a a place where we can collaborate on some solutions that will work for both of us. If I had just approached this from a, you're causing me a problem. I can't sleep around you. You have to fix this. People shut down. Partners shut down. So this is about sorting out the what's on your side, what's on my side. I can affect what's on my side and I can negotiate and talk and collaborate, hopefully move to collaboration with you on what it is. You know, in that case, it wound up being pretty complicated. It was a series of doctor's appointments that needed to be made combined with then not finding the solution we wanted, which meant separating bedrooms. 
which was the perfect solution for us, the solution we never thought we would ever want. And it was perfect. Who, you know, but it was the collaborative attitude that made this a pleasant thing rather than a fight that we just had for, you know, a decade or more. Oh, I love that. Okay. So your research is in jealousy. It is. Okay. I love this topic and I love it for so many different reasons. First of all, I love it because it seems taboo. Most of us don't want to admit that we have jealousy or jealousy shows up for us. And it's like, we want to call it anything besides jealousy. Like we don't want to admit that it's actually jealousy. Yep. So <laughs> that's how okay. all my research started. Okay. It was okay. Exactly. Tell that. me about it. Tell me all about it. Okay. So, um, my interest in jealousy is not born of like, Oh, I'm so curious about how jealousy works for other people. <laughs> it came because I put myself in the midst of jealousy. I left a marriage for a triad, a polyamorous triad. And it was messy. Polyamory is a relationship style where people have more than one romantic partner. And that in itself invites some jealousy in. Like there's some awareness of like, oh, well, if there's going to be more than one romantic partner, I can't even pretend that jealousy is going to stay at bay. I have to acknowledge it. But for some reason, mostly naivete, I had no idea what I was doing. Like didn't even have a book about this. For some reason, we decided collectively that the way we would deal with jealousy was to not ever talk about it. We banned the word. That was a great idea. (laughs) Um, Dripping sarcasm here. I I don't know why. This is not my go-to move at all. I am not the kind of person who tends to like banish words or I love to talk about difficult stuff. Bring it all. But jealousy brings up shame. Mm. Jealousy gets wrapped in shame frequently, especially if when we were little, we were taught that that like not sharing is bad. And so then if you didn't want to share something, now there's something wrong with you. And now it's all tangled up. And so when we collectively decided not to talk about jealousy, it was like taking a beach ball and trying to hold it underwater. Mm, I use this analogy all the time. It does not work. It does not work. Right. So I, yeah, boom. And exactly where you don't expect it, it'll come out and, and it can be messy. And then it starts to show up in other places. So I studied my way out of this mess because that's the only thing I knew how to do. So I spent a decade getting a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and then a doctorate in depth psychology. Depth psychology takes the unconscious very seriously. And so I started applying the concepts of like Jungian analysis, like complexes. What's a complex? It is this thing that hides in the shadows of your awareness in your unconscious and comes out and clobbers you in when you least expect it. And what I started to notice is that jealousy is exactly that sort of figure. It's archetypal. It's mm-hmm. essential. We can't, despite what the books may tell you, you can't cure it. You can't crush it. You can't kill it. It's part of the human experience. So when we try to cure it, kill it, or crush it, it's that beach ball shoved underwater. Mm-hmm. It will come up eventually. You, and you're going to waste a ton of energy trying to keep it repressed. Because it's an emotion, right? And most right are not wrong. They're not bad. They happen. We can't control them. Well, we can control how we react. What we do. Yeah. Right. But we have to feel them in order to be able to do something with it. Exactly. And it has a purpose. Researchers can spot jealousy as young as six months old. So it has a purpose. So jealousy is a triangle. 
And it's based on the idea that you came out, you know, you were born of a biped. So you came out unfinished, right? You couldn't fit through a pelvis unless you were unfinished. So mm-hmm. you come out and you need a caregiver for quite some time. And that caregiver and you start to form a bond of some kind, or maybe it's caregivers, but at any one time you have this, this dyad of infant and, and, and caregiver of some kind. When something is going to interrupt that bond, the baby has to respond. This is a survival response. If they sense interruption, they respond. And some babies are more mellow and some are more high strung and that's normal. I have seven kids. There's a million ways to be a baby. But that pattern of protecting against interrupting the love bond is hardwired on purpose. Mm -hmm. So if we pretend that it's not happening or we decide that it's a shameful emotion, all we're doing is saying that what we are hardwired to do doesn't belong and doesn't fit and is bad. That just wraps it more shame. And it stops us from understanding that jealousy is a complex emotion. It's not a simple emotion. Simple emotions, anger, fear, happiness. So these are, um, they're like molecular level emotions. You don't need to break them down further. Mm-hmm. But jealousy is made of a whole bunch of other things. Anger, rage, depression, sadness, grief, and fear. You mm-hmm. cannot separate jealousy from fear. Because you're fearing whether it's real interruption or imagined interruption, does not matter. The imagination is very real. You're fearing this interruption of your love bond. And when you fear it, the jealousy comes out and it it, it brings up all these other emotions. It's mm. a protective move. Mm. And yet it brings up things like sadness, grief, fear. These This is a whole host of emotions that we don't tend to deal with really well. And then we repress it all by saying it's just jealousy. Mm. And just for me, just is the problem. When we say it's just jealousy, we actually can't work with the constituent emotions. Mm. If you want to work with your fear, okay, most of us have started, if we're seeking, we're, we've started gathering tools for working with sadness, working with fear, working with anger. So we have some tools for that. But if we say, I'm just jealous, who has a tool for that? I've, I've had to craft tools for that, but it turns out what I need is my whole toolbox, all of the things that I will do to deal with grief and fear and sadness. And I need to utilize those, but first I need to identify what is this jealousy? Is my jealousy more angry? Okay. Get out my anger management tools. Is my jealousy really fearful? Maybe I need to turn to my attachment tools and see what I need there. Mm -hmm. Is my jealousy rage? Ooh, I might need to check myself and actually get a safety plan in place. I hear stories of people doing rageful things, plotting dangerous things because they're feeling jealousy. Mm-hmm. Jealousy is the only emotion that we collectively excuse violence for. Mm. Ah! <laughs> so awful. So to work with jealousy is to work with one of the most essential and yet under misunderstood emotions. Mm. And you're right when you say it's taboo. Most of us, at least in American culture, we're taught that we want to not own our jealousy. And yet every rom-com, every piece of literature, all of the ancient Greek myths, all fairy tales, um, and I don't know, thousands, I lost, I stopped counting songs with a jealousy root. When I got to 800, I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it's everywhere. And we don't treat jealousy just as something to fear. 
we don't just treat it as something taboo. We also, and this is where it gets really perverse. We also treat it as proof that we're loved. We want our partner to be just a little bit jealous. If they're not, we think there's something wrong. Dr. Maya Angelou has the best quote to sum that up. She said, jealousy in love is like salt in food. A little enhances the savor, but too much spoils the dish. It's an interesting concept. The idea that there is this piece of jealousy that we want. And in fact, I have had people come into my coaching practice and they're like, my partner's not jealous. And that makes me pissed. <laughs> like they don't, they don't understand it. They want that jealousy as proof, but they also don't want the jealousy to be too overwhelming because that's scary. And they don't want to have to feel jealous. And I don't know anybody who wants to be the object the, the third thing that's interrupting, I don't know anybody who wants to be thinking of themselves as that. Most people are just trying to relate. They're not trying to interrupt anything. It's it's really complicated. Wow. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm certain I felt it in romantic relationships. Um, however, the way it has reared its head for me is in entrepreneurship. Oh, yeah. And where I'm like, oh, why is that person more successful than I am? Or why? And Julia Cameron in The Artist's Way, I teach that book um, mm -hmm. often. And she talks about how you can't be jealous if you're, she, like the antidote is if you're doing the thing, you can't be jealous. But I don't think that's honestly true. Um yeah, I, I wouldn't say, I think that's oversimplification that could lead somebody to actually just shove it under back underneath. Right. That That's my, I've found that I have to like really, when it shows up for me, I have to really like dig into it and think, okay, if like, especially when I am doing the thing and doing the work to try to get to the, whatever spot I want to be in, yep. that can be such a painful place when you're like, I don't have that yet. Yes. So here's, let's get super clear, really yeah. granular. Jealousy and envy are slightly different. And what you're describing is really envy. Mm. And this is, this is a common um, misunderstanding and it, it doesn't matter much in practice because the good news is that when we, if we're working on jealousy skills, we can apply them to envy skills, but there is a difference. Um, so in Jungian psychology, I would say that Envy is always going to be between a dyad. It's always going to be, I want something you have, or I want to be just like you. Hmm. It's two people or two, two events. And that means that the injury is actually to myself. I am finding myself to be lacking Ooh. capital S self, right? So this an injury to self. So Cinderella's stepsisters are a good example of this. They don't want Cinderella not to have the prince. Not really. They want to be Cinderella. They want to be who she is. They, they hate themselves because they want to be her. That wound goes deep. And I would say it's not enough just to be doing the, the stepsisters go to the ball. That's not enough. They want to be her. Okay. You are blowing my mind <laughs> wide open right now. Okay. So like, then what's jealousy? Let's get like, what is yeah. it really? So, so jealousy is when there's there are always three people in jealousy. Jealousy will always be a triangle. It has a, it has a shape. Jealousy is going to be about the dyad. You have this, this me and my love bond, my love object, my person. 
let's say that, my person, whoever that is. And now I either imagine or I have evidence that someone else is going to interrupt that love bond. Now my energy, rather than being directed at the person, my person who I love so much and I want, I have this wonderful desire for them. Now my energy actually gets deflected. And now I'm I'm pointing this jealousy, which is actually sadness and anger and grief and rage and all these things. I'm pointing at this third. The third now becomes the bearer of my emotional burdens. It's not about, I want to be like the third thing. Not really. It's about, don't you dare interrupt. How dare you interrupt? Even just by being something I'm not. How dare you? So this is now an interpersonal problem. And here's the trick. Why these two things can get intermingled is because that third person doesn't have to be real. They don't have to objectively exist in the world. The imagination is a real place. Mm -hmm. So we can imagine into being a a third, a, a third thing. And in fact, we do all the time. It happens all the time. We imagine our partner or our lover or our business partner. We imagine that there's this this other drawing their attention. We imagine that and now it becomes real and it starts to hold some of the things that we should be we should be working on between ourselves and this, this person who we care about so much. Jealousy is a wonderful indicator of what we care about. And we should be aiming the energy that way and we know it. Mm. But instead, we feel this interruption and we're like, Arr! so we turn our attention to this third. And that actually deflates. There's less energy going into the love bond. And now there's this deflected energy going off into either real or imagined space. And that does not help anything. It wow. and often leads us into a place where we are intentionally, <laughs> intentionally creating barriers to intimacy between us and our partner rather than increasing the intimacy between us and our partner. Hmm. So Jolie, what do we do with this? When we like, we, or if you're like, I, yep, yep, yep. I'm feeling <laughs> what, what do you do next? Yeah. Okay. So I, what I saw in my research is that people who are successfully navigating jealousy, and this works with envy too, they're doing at least four things differently. Okay. First is they're naming jealousy. They're not, they, they stop being afraid of it. They stop self-shaming. And the world may still shame you about this, but you can stop self-shaming. So you name the jealousy. You say, it's entered the room. I know it's here. And we notice that's an indicator I care about someone. Okay, awesome. Get clear about that. Mm. If jealousy is showing up, there's care. There might also be ambivalence and hostility. There could be all sorts of things, but jealousy only shows up when we care about someone. Mm. Next, we got to find out what's going on under this wrap, this label, pop the hood of jealousy and find out what's actually going on. If there's anger, then it's time to apply some tools to that. If you have sadness, you could find yourself tumbling into a depression. Okay. We got to get ahead of that right now. So name the jealousy and start pulling apart this messy glob of emotions as soon as you possibly can. You're probably going to want to bring in all of your tools. So if you're a journaler, you're going to want to turn to your journal. If you're going to therapy, bring it there. And whatever you're doing, if somebody tells you that your jealousy is solved or will be solved by somebody else, by your partner changing their actions, it won't work. Mm -hmm. Turn back to yourself. They, your partner may have 
issues and may need to do some things differently, but your jealousy lives in you and it can pop up whether there's a real interruption or not. So mm-hmm. turn back to yourself and name the emotions that are coming up. From there, we want to start figuring out how to actually actually notice what the needs are. What are your needs? You need to be able to name your needs in order to get them met. So in other words, if someone is dealing with a jealousy situation that is about their partner, and let's just say they have no evidence of there being any kind of interruption, there's no person, but their friend, their partner's going out, you know, in the evening and just like going out to have a nice drink at the pub after work. And they are riddled with jealousy and they're sure something's going on, even though their rational brain knows that they have no evidence for this. This is a time to say, so what do I need? What would help me feel safer? And that might be about a check-in with a partner. It might just be a check-in. It might be a, what time will you be home so that I can use my self-care? And it's also going to be about your self-care. State your boundaries, get clear with them, and then put your self-care plan into action. I have an emergency go-to I feel jealousy playlist. It has all of the it has all of these wonderfully reassuring songs and none of those horrible I'm going to bash in his headlights <laughs> songs. It just I just weed those out because that kind of music's not going to help me in that moment. It's fun. I like that music, but it's not going to help. So I have a go-to playlist and I nourish myself by reminding myself that jealousy serves a purpose. I say This was here to tell me that I care about this person. Okay, that's a message for me. If this is a real thing where there has been an interruption to the love bond, then that's a time to work on what boundaries are gonna look like and what your agreements are gonna look like. So that's another conversation. And that is time to probably bring in a third person, a therapist, a coach, somebody to help you iron that out. But there's a fourth step and it's something that's super overlooked. And that is that, there's jealousy has an opposite emotion. If we can move toward jealousy's opposite emotion, then we're less caught in jealousy's darker side. So the opposite of jealousy is something called compersion. You won't find it in the dictionary. It's C-O-M-P-E-R-S-I-O-N. Compersion is to feel joy for another person's joy. Doesn't that sound like a really yummy place to be? Sounds like a very lovely place to be. And yet we don't teach it to our children. We don't learn about it when we're little kids. If you're thinking to yourself, no way, no how, I'm not going to look at my partner enjoying time with someone else and feel compersive, then I would encourage you to just stop, take a breath and say, okay, but I could practice compersion in other ways. When we have friends, we generally don't tell our friends that they can't have other friends, right? So we do practice feeling happy. Let's say my best friend, um, my best friend just, in fact, just went out to dinner with another friend of hers last Saturday. If I can't be involved in that because that has nothing to do with me, I may feel jealousy. The jealousy enters the room. I feel some stuff come up. I feel activated. It's not that I try to push the jealousy away, but I also remind myself that I can be compersive. I can practice feeling happy for her noticing that she's getting um, time with somebody she cares about. She's being seen by another set of eyes, by another heart. She's being witnessed in a way that I can't witness her Mm. and I can feel happiness for her. In, In that moment, I've just invited a little space around the jealousy 
And it's not just jealousy. Now there's jealousy and there's compersion. Hmm. It's so much easier to aim at something we want than to just run away from something we don't want. Okay. All of those tools are so useful. I appreciate you sharing all of that. (laughs) I want to switch gears a little bit because you have such um, an interesting body of work that I think is really useful. And I wonder, because this is such an interesting topic, and I'm sure listeners are curious about it, can you talk about um, open relationships a little bit? Sure. Why someone might want to move in that direction? And yeah, let's start there. Yeah. So open relationships is a broad term, right? And that encompasses a whole bunch of consensual non-monogamies. So consensual meaning we're not talking about cheating here. We're talking about relationships where people have decided to, with full clarity, have multiple loving partners. And that doesn't necessarily mean sex. Mm. This is about having consensual relationships and you you decide what are all these relationships going to be? Where are the boundaries? So it's not like they all look the same. Mm. So when I when people come to me and say, I think I'm interested in open relationships, the first question I have for them is, what does that mean to you? Because some people think that wanting an open relationship is instantly about having lots of sex. And anybody who's been in consensual non-monogamy for a while knows that it's far more about communication and boundaries and sharing needs and figuring out how to coordinate calendars. Because while love is not finite, calendars are finite. Having an open relationship style is, it's a choice. It's a decision someone makes. And some people move toward it because they feel like This is just how they're wired. They feel like it's their orientation and that works for them. And so they move in that direction. Some people come at it from a philosophical perspective. They're like, you know, this just feels correct. I don't want to be, in fact, my my own husband is this way. He's just never had an interest in participating in policing who I'm with. And that's so, so that's just how he's built. Like he doesn't necessarily even enjoy it all the time, but he philosophically is attached to that. Mm -hmm. And then some people come at it as just a decision. They're like, I'm going to try this out and I could be happy monogamous. I could be happy this way. It's a behavior choice. It doesn't matter so much why you decide to do it as that you get clear on what your reasons are and your definitions, because there are a lot of ways to define this. Some people do it and instantly fall into, okay, we have to follow. We have to have primary partners and secondary partners, and we're going to label everybody. Mm. Other people don't do any of that. Some people throw out the rule book altogether and participate in relationship anarchy where there's just no rules at all. And you're actually moving toward um, a kind of philosophical stance where there isn't hierarchical value system. This runs the gamut. So your reason needs to be your reason. That's the most important thing. Wow. Okay. So I didn't even realize that it was more of a philosophy of... It can be. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, I found it very interesting when I was doing my first research study on this. I noticed that the way people talked about their, their relationships and their jealousy was influenced by how they described their stance. I would ask them, so what got you started? Were you, you know, do you feel like this is an intrinsic part of you? Do you feel like this is a decision you make? Or does it feel like it's part of your, some people describe it essentially as a spiritual practice. 
It's, Mm -hmm. it's how they practice being a person. They want to do it this way. And so when they, when I heard them describe these different sort of categories that they could like loosely fall into, how they approached jealousy would also be impacted. Some people felt that it was part of their practice to work with their jealousy. So they were really, really inviting these conversations. Let's work with jealousy and let's work with the feelings that come up, the the challenges that come up in open relating, because that's how I will feel like I am participating in my being a person-ness. And other people felt like, yeah, I don't know. I, my partner and I both like to have multiple relationships. And so right now we're doing this and it's very, very different for them. They're like, could take it or leave it. And it doesn't feel so philosophical, but if it does, you can imagine that for the people who feel like their orientation or their philosophy is the root of it for them, what I noticed their answers around jealousy were, they were, they were very deeply grounded. They were like, I, I choose this. And so it is my active role to participate in working with the ramifications of jealousy, what I do with my jealousy. And that means that they were coming up, they had, they had had hard conversations, they'd done challenging things, and some of them had gotten hurt along the way, mm-hmm. but they also saw that as part of their process. Like the growth process, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It had meaning for them. And so because it had meaning, they didn't see it as inherently bad. Okay. Can you talk to me about individuation accelerator? Oh, sure. Yeah. This is that. Yes. Okay. So in Jungian psychology, there's this idea of individuation. Mm -hmm. Individuation is the process that all human souls are capable of souls in the most um, like divine universe spark, right? Like not a religious sense, but just your spark. You are here. Individuation is the process that you are going through as you as you grow, change, develop, as you go through different psychological states. Now in Jungian philosophy, this would be a, it's sort of a hierarchical, it's an ascension. I don't totally ascribe to the idea of ascension. I don't think we need to transcend this world. And so the thing I like to point out is there's no individuated state. Nobody, anybody who tells you they have individuated, like they're done, pause, (laughs) consider that. Instead, it's a process of individuating. Am I growing? Am I changing? Am I allowing myself to engage in what is going on in my life in a psychological way? And that means a process of reflection on what is happening and making meaning. Um, James Hillman, another um, depth psychologist would talk about how I make meaning is how I make soul. That's the, he called it the act of soul making. And so the individuation accelerator, that's what I call relationships. If you put yourself in a relationship that is intentionally designing itself, you are participating in this process of like, this isn't working. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's try to figure this out. Let's work through our problems. You're actively participating in that. Even if you're only doing it from your side and your partner isn't, then your relationship can be the container in which you are actively doing your individuation work. Wow. And I love that. Like I that love to me, too. that's like, that's it. I, I knew I had found my place in the world when mm-hmm. I realized, oh, I'm all about relationships. And that can be my work, not just because I coach, but because my work being in my personal relationships really is my process. And it's not just my husband, my best friend and I have an intentional friendship. 
Hmm. And it takes a lot of effort. We put a lot of work into it. It's not small. (laughs) I have a PLP, a platonic life partner. Yes. You know, like that is, that is difficult. It's It's beautiful. But when you are really close to someone, when it's not necessarily because you believe all the same things, yeah, which is where things get messy. Totally. And that's, that's where I believe that relationships. So Jungian psychology relies so much on the the intra psychological, right? Like your, your inner world. And this is why so many introverted people are drawn to it. I am an extrovert's extrovert. And yet here I was drawn to it. And I'm like, what happens if I look at the interpersonal in the same light? And for me, it is all those places where I don't align with people, all those places where I can see the space between me and them. What um, the philosopher Martin Buber would call the I thou relationship. All of the places where I see that the other is truly other, capital O other, and I am self, capital S self, and we are both sacred. And yet there's space between us. There is in that space difference and potentially argument and problems and misunderstandings, but there's also innovation and creativity and newness and light. That space allows me to experience the world as more than what I can make it all on my own. Mm. And that to me is, it's, it's priceless and it's worth the pain that relationships are. Cause I'm very frank about that relation relationships cause pain. But that's not a bad thing. My tagline is relationships are messy and that's a good thing. <laughs> it's it's what and it's what is. There's something very practical about it. When we imagine that relationships should always be neat, mm. we are inviting disappointment. Yeah. I, you know, I am a positive psychology practitioner, and this is something I've been talking about a lot on the podcast. Chris Peterson, the father of positive psychology, summed it up in three words, other people matter, right? It's like, how do we know where we begin and end if we aren't in a relationship with others? Right, right. And this is where I parted ways with, you know, I went to a school for my doctorate where, you know, 80, 85% of the people identify as introverted, right? And they're very, um, they tend to be very self-contained. And I, I couldn't quite fit. I never quite fit. And so when I started doing my research and realizing that for me, the other was the the key to understanding any of it. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that the, the intra psychological doesn't matter. It does. I do have a very rich inner world and I'm incredibly self-reflective. And yet much of my self-reflection is about how I show up in that outer world. It's not just, it's not just inside. It's how do I show up? What did I do? How did I respond? What did I mean to do? And how did I make meaning out of it? All of my research is always, how did I make meaning out of, and all of my work is how do I make meaning out of my trauma? Yeah. We're all going to experience trauma, big T or or little T. It doesn't matter. We're going to experience this stuff. If I make meaning out of it, now it is transformational. And the word trauma to me is the same as transformational. It's, mm. it's what changes us it's for like good and for bad. Post-traumatic growth. Right. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm, this is so rich. I feel like I could keep talking to you today, <laughs> but I'm curious, what else would you like to share with listeners? Well, I'm always happy to remind people that 
when when you're making a relationship, you probably weren't as clear as you thought you were. So I will leave people with this. I have conversations with people all the time who are disappointed about something in their relationships or some pattern that they keep playing out over and over again. The thing that I think we can put into action right away is have the conversations that weren't had at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Usually in those first few weeks or months, we project a whole bunch of stuff that we wish the other person were. We have stuff projected on us and we hope, we cross our fingers, we hope, we hint, and we just jump. And then it's like we imagine that some future version of ourselves is going to have those hard conversations and find out what we need to find out. And then we just keep hinting and hoping for a lifetime. It's never too late to go back and have the conversations that define how you relate to each other, how you show up in the bedroom, how you want your sex life to go, how you want money to be handled, how you want to be talked about, how you want to share your space. These conversations need to be intentionally crafted, I believe, in order for them to not turn into just the same old, same old, especially the longer a relationship has been, the more intention we'll need to bring to crafting a conversation that changes the direction. I wrote templates. I'm like, let's, let's like make this really practical. Like, how am I going to have this conversation so that we can establish actual explicit agreements and not just keep doing the same thing over and over again, whether that's about jealousy or who puts out the trash, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So good. Okay. Last question for you. How do you live a life of abundance? People. I let people touch me. (laughs) And it sometimes really bums me out. It can be hard. I let people affect me. And there's this part of me when I was a little girl that thought that that was going to be my downfall. And it turns out that all of those ways that I let people's stories really, really, really matter to me. And I let people matter to me. That's that's it. That's all that there is for me to, to have abundance. And I have, I've lost everyone in my, my family of origin. They're all gone now. Mm. I've walked all of them to death's door. And yet that's where the abundance was. It was in the walking with them through wherever their journey went. So no matter how dark it gets, it's just connecting to other people. Julie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You are so welcome. Thank you for giving me the space to talk about things that matter to me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Julie and I would love to know what you thought of today's episode. Please head over to iTunes, fill in some stars and write a review. It takes about five minutes and it would mean the world. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Abby Gibb, and her Media Visibility Accelerator. Thank you to Ira Sterling of Julia Sound Recording for our theme music, and thank you to my editor, Tumani Johnson of FX Media for his work on today's episode. Remember, every one of us has wisdom within. Keep sharing your words of wisdom because you never know who you'll inspire.